A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So I know we're all kind of having this uh, close encounter with reality today, right? The elections have come and gone. I'm seeing and reading a lot of uh, responses from people who are very disappointed. Hey, turns out we weren't going to vote our way out of this mess after all. Now, there were some positive gains, and we'll talk about those in a few moments. But, uh, yeah, the, the situation is is dicey. And this is this is actually, I mean, I'm not trying to minimize, yeah, that's, oh, it's all gray, it's okay, you know. There's, look, the sun is shining somewhere. Yes, up above the clouds, I'm sure it is. But we're in a bit of a fix, and it took us a long time to get here. And there are consequences for decisions that have been made, actually, for generations that are finally starting to catch up with us. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't suck, because it does. It's <laughs> it's discouraging, and and it shows, again, just how divided we are. But it also, you know, the election's gone now. Okay, we, we can settle in with the consequences. But most importantly, this is where you and I can roll up our sleeves and really start to take charge in our own lives. And, and let me explain what I mean here. Uh, my friend Tyler sent me a message last night, and I, I just thought this was so well thought out. He said, I've decided that I'm an election denier. Now, listen to what he means by that. I deny that the political elite should control my life. I deny their illegitimate power and authority over me. I deny the invisible and undefinable social contract I never signed or agreed to. I deny the collective over the individual. So, wait a minute, Brian, are you telling us we should be election deniers in the sense that my friend Tyler's talking about? Yes, absolutely. We should. And and I'll give you the justification for why I think that's right. This isn't about, well, you're just going to be a law unto yourself. You have consent, and you can either freely give it or you can withhold it depending upon what uh, someone else is asking of you. Now, I know politicians don't tend to ask. They mandate, they demand, they, uh, you know, require this under the penalty of law. But ultimately, you have a choice of whether or not you are going to submit to their authority or not. What's the saying? I'm not questioning your authority. I'm denying its existence. If you do not give someone authority over you, I mean, short of a policeman who's there to beat you into submission or, you know, kill you if you resist hard enough. Yeah, you're, uh, you know, you're probably pretty free to just say no. Now, I realize that's that's a radical thought for some people. Well, why would, why would I say no if somebody has authority? I guess it comes down to do they have legitimate authority? I really like the example that Tom Woods uses of, you know, if you if I were to come to your house and tell you, hey, as long as you're in this neighborhood, I want you to wear this funny hat. As long as you are, you know, in your house or out about in, in, in this neighborhood, you have to have this hat on your head. How would you react if somebody showed up on your doorstep telling you that? Right? You'd laugh them out of the place. Get out of here. I'm not going to do that. Now, on the other hand, if you go to visit Tom at his house and he says, hey, it's great to have you here, but to come into my house, you have to wear this hat. Now, you're still free to say, you know, that uh, I don't want to, I don't want to wear it, but Does he have authority to require that of people? Well, if it's his house, yeah, he does. That doesn't mean you have to submit to it, 
but uh, you do have a choice. Now, for him to come to your house and tell you that you have to do it because he said so, no, not even close. You don't have to do what somebody says just because, you know, this many people voted for it. Now, I trust that, uh, you know, you're, you're a person with a conscience and a working moral compass. It's not like you're going to go out there and just live the law of the jungle. You're going to be a caveman clubbing people, taking what you want, and dragging it back to your cave. No. This is why we have a conscience. This is why we have free will. But just because some politician puts words on paper or just because some politicians get together and decide, hey, we're going to force everybody to experience clean energy, which, by the way, looks a lot like poverty. At least the, the more I'm looking at it, the more it's feeling like that's, that's kind of the goal here. And keep in mind that, you know, if you don't go along with this, I, I know in, where I live in Idaho, um, the Republican incumbent gover- governor, I believe, was reelected. And now he's choosing to portray it as, well, I have a mandate. See, the people want what I want. This is the same thing Joe Biden did, by the way, when, when he was <clears throat> elected, you know, back in 2020. Now that I have this mandate, I guess I better impose everything on you that you people want. But you didn't ask for it. And I suspect that uh, Governor Little's going to run headlong into reality, too. In fact, uh, if, if there's anything to take away from, from, you know, the whole accusation of, well, you know, if you're an election denier, if you don't accept the results, you know, you're a denier. A denier, that's a bad thing. Really? If that's a bad thing, then uh, let me just make this clear. I don't want to deal with reality deniers. What's a reality denier? A reality denier would be someone who would tell me things like, well, you know, uh, girls have a penis. Or, you know, men can get pregnant or things like that. Or if you pay me enough money in taxes or you let me have enough control over your life, I can control the climate. That's a reality denier. So I'm encouraging you, stay tethered to reality. Don't, uh, don't do what the reality deniers are demanding you to do. But reserve that right to be a denier who denies the political elite control over your life who denies illegitimate power and authority to inflict itself upon you, and above all, who refuses to abide by an invisible, undefinable social contract that you have never seen, nor signed, nor agreed to. That doesn't mean you're going to be a wild, crazy outlaw like, you know, Biff Tannen in the Wild West. You are going to be a person who chooses his or her own path. And I really trust you can, you can make that decision on your own. That's the difference between me and politicians. That's why I'm not a politician. You don't need me to tell you how to run your life. Why? Because nobody knows better what you really do need than you. I think of my friend Gary Welch, who I thought had such a a great definition of socialism. We hear that word tossed around a lot, and for some people it's, you know, it's kind of a cuss word. Well, that just sounds like socialism to me, you you socialist. (laughs) But... If, if you really want to get down to it, socialism is just simply another form of collectivism, like communism, and it's, it requires that you submit your personal autonomy to some either person or maybe small clique of persons who um, are like the vanguard who apparently know better than you what you need and how to run your life. That's it, plain and simple. Either you have... You claim, use, and defend your rights as an individual, or you surrender the the ability to make those choices to somebody else. Now, that's pretty black and white thinking. Well, there's not a lot of room for nuance there, Brian. And um, no, that's kind of the point. It's like being a little bit pregnant. 
You either are or you aren't. You either understand that you have individual rights and you stand up for them, or you don't. You can probably guess what the vast majority of people uh, think in terms of this. They, they go with, well, you know, it says here that we have to do this, so I guess we have to go along with it. I suggest that maybe this is the time to really focus on building what comes next. It's not a matter of taking up torches and pitchforks and we're going to go out and fight them in the streets until we prevail. What we have to do is something that is difficult, but it's also a much simpler way to to secure our freedoms. And that is simply make those who wish to control us and the systems that they use to control us obsolete. And if that sounds like, well, I don't know where to begin. Okay, take a look at what homeschoolers have done. The homeschool movement is testament to what a parallel institution or parallel society can can be like. And they've come a long way in the last few years, the last few decades, actually, from where they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. There were places that literally outlawed homeschooling. Actually, in Germany, they still do. You're not to homeschool your children (laughs) for some reason. You know, that uh, sense of order doesn't extend to people thinking for themselves. But now homeschooling is very mainstream for most people. In fact, more so since all the COVID lockdowns and so forth. So instead of wallowing in, well, you know, the red wave turned out to be like a little little lap of a puddle or a little splash. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't a big sweep. There was never going to be a wholesale change, okay? We weren't going to vote our way out of the crisis that we're currently in. And by the way, this crisis is intensifying, I don't know if you're keeping an eye on the price of diesel, but the price of diesel keeps jumping 10 cents at a time, and it is steadily going higher. There are more and more places that are starting to say, hey, we're seeing diesel shortages. Oh, and to to add a little cherry on top to all that good news, uh, there was a major, major refinery fire in El Segundo, California yesterday. In fact, they may still be finding it. I don't know. Uh, But uh, that's not good. First, it was food processing, plants burning down. Now we've got refineries being damaged. Just know, things are about to tighten up in a pretty big way. And if you have been building your tribe, if you have been uh, getting close to the people you need to be close to, the people you can trust, if you've learned to trust yourself and taken the time to uh, set aside some common sense preparations and ways to be self-reliant as much as possible, it's still going to be hard, but you're going to do okay. Oh, and there's another aspect. Ask for God's help. You might be surprised how willing God is to help those who turn their faces toward him. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to GarageDoorProServices.com. And especially, I want to I give a shout out to Seth, who is the owner of Garage Door Pros. What a great guy. A remarkable businessman, and uh, he took over this business here a short time ago and has really turned it into a very customer-focused business. Meaning, if you go on their website, GarageDoorProServices.com, you read the reviews that their customers have left. It's very clear. That this company not only installs services and repairs garage doors, but they do it with great attention to keeping their customers happy. That matters. 
Sometimes, uh, sometimes that's that's a bit of a dying art. But in St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and Colorado City, if you're lucky enough to live there, garagedoorproservices.com, that's where you want to go for garage doors. All right, let's talk a little bit about... Uh, about the reality of uh, the the lowdown on the showdown, okay? You want to get a good take on uh, on what was at stake in the election? Let's go to James Howard Kunstler. He says, "Threat to our democracy, the effrontery. In a fair and just world, the Democratic Party of chaos would slouch into the donkey's graveyard. But since when is the USA part of a fair and just world?" Kunstler says, is there a more preposterous notion warbled across this troubled nation than the campaign mantra that Joe Biden and the clack concealed behind him are defending our democracy? In fact, he says, what could be more self-evidently untrue? For example, is censorship and abridging the First Amendment democratic? They haven't been trying to finesse their ongoing assault on free speech. They abhor diversity of opinion, especially when it conflicts with their obvious efforts to wreck the country. Is sicking the dogs of the FBI and jailing their opponents outside due process of law democratic? Is ballot fraud democratic? Forced vaccination? He says, I could go on and often do, but you know exactly what they're doing. Lying incessantly about everything, shoving lunatic narratives down your throat, turning reality inside out and upside down, and blowing up what's left of American culture and economic life. If what they're doing is obvious, why they're doing it isn't. And James Howard Kunstler says, I have only two theories. One, the party of chaos is acting in the interests of sinister forces outside our polity. Or two, they're so far gone ethically and so deep in criminality carried out by so many persons and agencies in their service that everything you see them do now is some attempt to cover up their crimes or distract from their discovery. Now, he says the correct answer is probably both. One way or another, Davos money and influence worms its way through U.S. institutions and works its wicked will, chewing up the structural supports of daily life. One obvious agent is George Soros, whose many NGOs operate at the fine-grained local level to elect district attorneys who won't enforce the criminal statutes, and state state secretaries of state who won't enforce election laws. Mr. Soros is also deeply implicated through his Atlantic Council organization in the years-long program to destabilize Ukraine and light the fire for a completely avoidable world war. At least part of the time, George Soros lives in the U.S. Why his activities are not under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice probably answers your questions about his hidden influence at the higher levels of government. Bill Gates, the Microsoft tycoon, circulates at the center of the evil nexus where U.S. public health shakes hands with the drug companies. His money appears to be entangled in the biolab projects around the world, engaged in weaponizing disease and then profiting from alleged vaccines to defeat it. The COVID-19 project went badly awry, especially the vaccine part. He's been vocal about reducing the world's population and now appears to have succeeded in helping to prompt a weird medical genocide. Other supporting outside players range from the barely plausible Klaus Schwab and his World Economic Forum, which has implanted leaders and managers all over Western Civ, inculcated in his Great Reset effort to wreck what's left of industrial society and its cultural armature, to shadowy figures in European banking, chattered about but never identified, to the CCP, which has gotten huge benefits from its relatively penny-ante investments in the Biden family. On the domestic scene, where covering up skines of manifold crimes sets the political tone, Christopher Ray of the FBI must lead the pack of paper hangers, 
Under his leadership beginning in 2017, the agency carried out most of its Russiagate crimes against a sitting president and did absolutely nothing to investigate the blatant ballot fraud of 2020 that sealed the deal. Even under the shelter of Joe Biden, who Mr. Ray helped elect, and the stooge AG Merrick Garland, damning information about FBI crimes continues to leak out of the woodwork via whistleblowers, while the agency behaves more and more like an American Gestapo. All that desperation probably signals the chilling fear that a new Congress will start seriously asking questions about all this misconduct that could eventually lead to the right people going to jail. Special Counsel John Durham failed to gain convictions in this year's trial of small-timers Sussman and Denchenko, but he did manage to make the public many salient, make public many salient original sins of the Russiagate op in the process. And though 99.9% of observers think he's done, Kunstler says I'd be willing to bet that more will be heard from Mr. Durham after the election, and not just some jive report. Similarly, in U.S. public health, where the central figure in the COVID disaster, Dr. Anthony Fauci, seems to think that retirement will erect an invisible shield from prosecution around him if he lives long enough. Dr. Fauci's agile avoidance of giving testimony under oath may be at an end, as federal judge Terry Doty has compelled him to be deposed in the joint Missouri-Louisiana lawsuit alleging collusion between the government and tech companies in censoring free speech related to COVID and the vaccines. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC has gone to ground for more than a week before the election, while reports pile up of soaring all-causes deaths implicating the mRNA shots. Former NIH Director Francis Collins lays low. Dr. Ralph Barrick is bunkered in and silent at the University of North Carolina. And scores of other higher-up employees, and present and former at CDC, FDA, and other public health agencies, must be nervous if Congress flips about having to account for what they did to their country, if it does flip. By the way, that question still kind of hangs in the balance here. So, Kunstler says, the midterm elections plod to a climax on elephant feet. The shift in sentiment is palpable. Under normal circumstances, the prodigious naked dishonesty of the Democratic Party of Chaos and its many gratuitous insults to the voting public, such as the, la the past year's barrage of drag queen story hours, would lead to an extinction event for the Dems. Their desperation must be such that they will try anything now to stave off an election disaster, including any and all forms of ballot fraud. Look to the usual places, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona. Now, this time, of course, many observers are watching and they'll know what to look for. The result could easily be an election, the outcome of which won't be accepted by either party, sparking an invitation to broad civil disorder. Kunstler says, I am not much of a praying man, but tomorrow I'll get down on my knees for a few words with the manager. Interesting take. Now, again, I, I know most of us, myself included, had high hopes that, well, at least we'll see some good pushback here. I think there was some good pushback. But was it enough to turn the tide? No, probably not. And so that means that we still have some heavy lifting ahead of us, okay? We did, we did not crest the hill, and now we can just coast, you know, easily down the other side. We actually are still ascending the hill, pushing a large boulder ahead of us, like Sisyphus, and, and, and praying that it doesn't come rolling back on us and, and crush us. But let's just remember, it's a season that we're going through. And it's, it's a difficult season, and there, there are likely some very serious consequences coming in the next few weeks. So even if the balance of power at the federal level shifts, 
keep in mind that the incumbents have several weeks here to which they can use to their advantage. In other words, they can implement and and send into motion a bunch of different bills and and penalties and you know basically they they can implement parts of their agenda to punish the American public for not being sufficiently uh, you know submissive to their demands. I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. And in the meantime, we've got about half the country, you know, still, you know, growling and looking at the other side's throats and wishing they could reach over there and rip it out. I'm just going to say, don't thirst for conflict. Don't, don't go, don't be like Han Solo. Let's get a fair fight going here and get this thing over with. This is where you need to be wise. A bit circumspect. But above all, stay active and keep doing the right thing, no matter what. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, I was hoping to have some stories to share with you today that would, you know, lift your spirits and leave you with a a little bit of sunshine in your heart and maybe a catchy tune stuck in your head. Now, my theme music isn't going to cut it. Anyway, I I, I do want to share some thoughts on what's happening financially. And this, this means, yes, we've got a little bit of bad news to face. Come on, you are tough enough to do this. But like it or not, all of us are getting a real world education of what serious inflation is like. I'm hearing it more and more. In fact, my wife came home from the store yesterday and she was like, wow. She goes, two gallons of milk, a couple pounds of butter, 15 bucks. And she, by the way, she got stuff on sale. So it was like, hey, we saved money. But man, when you got to, when you got to lay down the better part of a $20 bill for a couple of gallons of milk and a couple of pounds of butter, wow, something is, is definitely noticeably wrong. I, I didn't realize I do. I must do a lot of the grocery shopping because uh, <laughs> I notice it every time I go. I either notice the smaller packages or I notice the fact that the price has gone up on just about everything. Just about every time I go, the price has started to inch up again. So let's talk a little bit about why it's happening. And in fact, I want to turn to an article by John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's about uh, some comments that Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank made about inflation. It's titled, You Printed $7 Trillion in 30 Months. What Did You Think Would Happen? John Miltimore writes, Americans are facing 40-year high inflation, and there's been no shortage of discussion on the topic. It's the number one issue on the minds of Americans heading into midterms, and every day on TV and in newspapers, pundits are debating how long it will last and deciding who to blame. What's most astonishing amid the flurry of news is just how badly the commentary misses So while there's broad agreement that the U.S. is experiencing dangerously high inflation, partisanship and ideology have polluted basic economics. Progressive politicians like Robert Reich and Senator Elizabeth Warren tweet incessantly that corporate greed is to blame, an idea even Democratic economists have summarily dismissed. President Joe Biden, meantime, has blamed Vladimir Putin. Republicans, on the other hand, have consistently made the case that Joe Biden is the inflation culprit. But as John Miltimore points out here, all of these explanations are entirely or mostly wrong. So while it's true that Putin and Biden deserve some blame, particularly in terms of high energy prices, 
there seems to be an unspoken bipartisan consensus to ignore the elephant in the room, the Federal Reserve's unprecedented money printing. One person not playing the game is Kevin O'Leary, the Canadian entrepreneur and investor who regularly appears on ABC's Shark Tank. While speaking with journalist Daniela Cambone, O'Leary bluntly explained why Americans are experiencing the highest inflation in generations. O'Leary said, the printing presses have gone insane. That's why we have inflation in the, in the first place. Now, John Miltimore explains, by printing presses, O'Leary's talking about the Federal Reserve. The central bank has been expanding the supply of money for decades, and the clip has picked up in recent years. Nothing, however, has compared to the monetary expansion that occurred during the pandemic, something Fed Chairman Jerome Powell recently admitted in a 60 Minutes interview with Scott Pelley. You flooded the system with money, the CBS journalist said. Yes, we did, Powell responded. Well, this is what O'Leary is getting at. Flooding the system with money is what drove inflation to historic highs, and the result was always an obvious one. O'Leary says, for all the talk of inflation, you print $6.72 trillion in 30 months. What the hell did you think was going to happen? Of course there's going to be inflation. Now, O'Leary's figures are not wrong. Federal Reserve data showed that in August 2019, there was $14.9 trillion total in circulation. By January 2022, there was $21.6 trillion. In other words, more than 30% of dollars in circulation in January 2022 had been created in the previous 30 months. By the way, there's a chart that he uses to, to illustrate this. That's a pretty steep climb on that chart. I mean, let your eyes uh, tell you the truth there. That's, that's a lot of money being created out of thin air. So what is inflation? John Miltimore says money creation is the obvious driver of price inflation, a concept that most Americans have at least a vague understanding of because we see it all around us today. Prices are up for almost everything and up a lot. But are higher prices alone evidence of inflation? Prices are always changing after all. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they fall. Sometimes it has nothing to do with money printing, but is simply a reflection of changes in supply and demand. This is what makes inflation challenging to define, and in fact, there are two definitions for it. For centuries, inflation was defined essentially as an increase in the money supply. Basic economics holds that if you expand the money supply without expanding goods and services, prices will rise. So that was the definition of inflation, an increase in the supply of money. But economists in the 20th century added a second definition, calling inflation a general and sustained increase in prices. Now we can see from this definition that what separates inflation from simple price inflation is that they are broad and sustained. Now some economists prefer the older definition of inflation, and Henry Hazlitt, author of Economics in One Lesson, can help us see why. Hazlitt explained, inflation is an increase in the quantity of money and credit. Its chief consequence is soaring prices. Therefore, inflation, if we misuse the term to mean rising prices themselves, is caused solely by printing more money. For this, the government's monetary policies are entirely responsible. Hazlitt argues that rising prices are the consequence of inflation, which is an increase in the money supply. This is why some economists don't like the new definition of inflation. I prefer the older definition, Pace University economist Joseph Salerno explained in a lecture on hyperinflation. I think it's more useful. So it's not difficult to see why some economists see the traditional definition of inflation as superior. It gets right to the cause of price increases and expansion of the money supply, while the new definition focuses on a symptom of inflation, a general and sustained increase in prices. 
Now, the second definition is far less clear, which is precisely why some people like it. Nobody wants to be blamed for inflation, after all, and under the first definition, blame will always return to one spot, the people who control the money supply, and to a lesser extent, the politicians, big banks, and bureaucrats who support the Fed and directly benefit from its largesse. That's a lot of pressure for central bankers and politicians. It's far easier to say Vladimir Putin is primarily responsible for high prices, or the greedy corporations, or Joe Biden's Build Back Better policies. Now, John Miltimore says, some will tell you that if you're under 60, this is probably the first time you've experienced inflation, but this is not true. Usually, inflation is just small enough that people don't notice it as much. For example, government data show a dollar printed in 1990 had already lost 50% of its purchasing power by 2021. This is why inflation is often called a silent killer. Nobel Prize winning economist F.A. Hayek once observed, I do not think it is an exaggeration to say history is largely a history of inflation, using inflations engineered by governments for the gain of governments. Now, this is why Hayek believed the only way to have sound money was to take it out of the hands of central bankers and planners. Hayek said, I don't believe we shall ever have good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. This is precisely why there's been such enthusiasm around decentralized currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Whether cryptocurrencies can supplant the dollar remains to be seen, but John Miltimore says one thing is clear. The primary cause of inflation is not a boogeyman. It's not a Russian dictator, corporate greed, or bad legislation. The primary cause of inflation is the printing presses, exactly like Kevin O'Leary says. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. And I would encourage you, uh, if John Miltimore writes something, it's, it's, I have found it to be worth reading. I think he's one of the better thinkers out there. He is uh, actually one of my favorite writers for this reason. He's probably been wrong at some point in his life, but I'm telling you, the guy's not wrong often. And he backs up what he says with good, solid documentation. By the way, if you would be interested in subscribing to my show notes, it's not going to cost you anything except share your email address with me. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes and down at the bottom of the page, you'll see subscribe. That's where it's going to ask you to put in your email. It's that simple. With your email, which I will never share, sell, or give to anybody else, I will drop a copy of those show notes into your inbox each day that I do the program. And I'm not saying this is going to be, you know, the equivalent of a master's level, you know, degree. It's just, uh, I, I go through a lot of information in the course of a day's work. And I like to share the articles that I think shed light on pertinent subjects. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree. So by subscribing, you're not, you know, implying that, yes, I am in lockstep with you, Brian, and will never, ever disagree. I hope you do disagree. Because I hope you're willing to think for yourself and do your own homework. I'm just trying to take some of the work out of it as far as, you know, gleaning useful information. And again, what you do with this information is up to you. I just put it together and put it out there in the hopes that those who are really looking for truths that somehow don't seem to make it through the filters of our mass media or partisan media, you know, they can find something on which they can hang their hats. Something that's timely, something that's credible, and that adds to your understanding of the world. All right, I got to take a very quick break. I've got some more fun stuff to share with you just the other side of these commercial messages. Please stay with us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to recognize MonticelloCollege.org, also HSLAmmo.com, and LifesavingFood.com. These are some of my prime sponsors of my program. I would encourage you to go to my website, take a little click on their uh, various uh, web links, and visit them. Hopefully, if you need what they're offering, you'll, you'll buy it from them or refer somebody there if you know that they're in need of it. But uh, please support my sponsors because they support me, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate them making it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. Well, you know, to understand a lot of the conflict in the world around us, the first thing we have to understand is how and why it is created by manipulators like the World Economic Forum, among others. Brandon Smith has an excellent article. The WEF's stakeholder capitalism is just global fascism by another name. Now, I know you hear the term fascism thrown around a lot, usually by people who are, you know, in some way disagreeing with you. What? You didn't vote for more drag queen story hour? You're a fascist, obviously. You know, (laughs) in fact, I think any anybody who didn't vote a straight Democratic ticket yesterday probably was a fascist in the minds of some people. But here's a great explanation of what it really is. And this will give you some good historical context as well. Brandon Smith says the concept of fascism was originally entered into the Encyclopedia Italiana by Italian philosopher Giovanni Gentile who stated that fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism because it is a merger of state and corporate power. Benito Mussolini would later take credit for the quote as if he had written it himself, but it's important to note because it outlines the primary purpose of the ideology rather than simply throwing the label around at people we don't like as a dishonest means to undermine their legitimacy. Brandon says, despite the fact that leftists today often attack conservatives as fascists, Because of our desire to protect national boundaries and Western heritage, he says the truth is that all fascism is deeply rooted in leftist philosophies and thinkers. Mussolini was a longtime socialist, a member of the party who greatly admired Karl Marx. He deviated from socialists over their desire to remain neutral during World War I and went on to champion a combination of socialism and nationalism, which we now know as fascism. Adolf Hitler was also a socialist and an admirer of Karl Marx, much like Mussolini. It's actually hard to find, rather, where Marx, the communists, and the fascists actually differ from each other. A deeper sense of nationalism seems to be one of the few points of contention. Though Marx saw the existence of nation-states as temporary to the proletariat and to the ruling class, he noted that the industrialists were erasing national boundaries anyway. Marx argues in the Communist Manifesto with some optimism, quote, national differences and antagonisms between people are already tending to disappear more and more owing to the development of the bourgeoisie, the growth of free trade and a world market, and the increasing uniformity of industrial processes and corresponding conditions of life. So Brandon Smith says, Marx saw the development of corporate power as useful and the next necessary step towards socialism noting that joint stock companies or corporations and the credit system are, in Marx's words, the abolition of the capitalist mode of production within the capitalist mode of production itself. In other words, corporations are viewed as a tool for the eventual transition to a socialist utopia and the death of free markets. 
Now, Brandon says, once again, we see there's very little difference in motive between the political left and the fascists. The natural progression of every form of Marxism, communism, socialism, fascism, etc., all ultimately lead to a kind of globalist ideology and erasure of cultural separation. So the methods might differ slightly, but the end result is the same. Some think this is a good thing, but it's actually quite poisonous. Globalism requires an overarching social dynamic, a single hive mind, otherwise it cannot survive. If people have the ability to choose or create better options or different options for living, then globalism loses significance. The existence of choice has to be erased. This is a behavior that the political left has fully embraced, and they're more than happy to work hand-in-hand with corporate oligarchs to make their ideal system a reality. Long gone are the days of anti-corporate progressives. They love corporate dominance, but only if those companies promote and enforce leftist models for society. So Mussolini's fascism is at the root of the very corporate governance that leftists applaud and lust after today. They have far more in common with fascists than they realize. The new fascism is a rebranded philosophy best represented by something called stakeholder capitalism. In fact, that's a term often used by globalists at the World Economic Forum and the head of the WEF, Klaus Schwab. The media-friendly definition of stakeholder capitalism is this. A form of capitalism in which companies do not only optimize short-term profits for shareholders, but seek long-term value creation by taking into account the needs of all their stakeholders and society at large. But Brandon asks, who are all stakeholders in the opinion of the World Economic Forum? Well, according to Klaus Schwab, they are all of human civilization now and in the future. In other words, the goal of, of SHC for corporate leaders and goal, the globalist bureaucracy to take responsibility for the entire world, not just their own employees, shareholders, and profits. And such leaders would not be acting as individuals. They would be acting as a collective. In other words, that uh, SHC requires all major corporations to act as a single unit with a single purpose and a unified collectivist ideology, an ideological monopoly. As Klaus Schwab states, quote, the most important characteristic of the stakeholder model today is that the stakes of our system are now more clearly global. Economies, societies, and the environment are more closely linked to each other now than 50 years ago. The model we present here is therefore fundamentally global in nature, and the two primary stakeholders are as well. What was once seen as externalities in national economic policymaking and individual corporate decision-making will now need to be incorporated or internalized in the operations of every government, company, community, and individual. The planet is thus the center of the global economic system, and its health should be optimized in the decisions made by all other stakeholders. End quote. So, the stakeholder capitalism concept is deceptive on its very face, because it pretends as if corporations will be held accountable by the public within some form of business democracy as if the public will have a vote on what the corporations do. In reality, it will be corporations telling the public what is acceptable to think and do, and corporations in conjunction with governments using their power to punish people who do not agree. Okay, let's hit the brakes here for a second. Think to what was happening a year ago with the the workplace mandates for, well, you either get the jab or you lose your job. That was your first glimpse of what this merger of power would look like. 
Now apply to that social credit, apply to that central bank digital currencies, apply to that digital IDs, like a digital passport that you will need in order to uh, participate in society. Can you see where this would become a mechanism of control in a huge hurry? Anyway, Brandon Smith says the great magic trick is that these same unified corporations use the shield of private property and business rights as a mean to control, means to control society without repercussions. After all, a primary principle of conservatism in the U.S. Constitution is private property rights. So stepping in to disrupt go- corrupt, or corporate governance would be violating one of our own beloved ideals. It sounds like a catch-22, but it's not. He says, as mentioned above... Corporations are, at their very core, a socialist concept. They are created through government charter, handed legal personhood, and given special protections from government. In other words, they're not free market entities. And Adam Smith, originator of most free market ideals, stood against corporations as destructive and prone to monopoly. So as long as they receive protections from the government, including monetary stimulus and bailouts, Corporations should not enjoy the same private property protections as regular businesses do. They're parasitic creations, alien to the natural business world, and in a freedom-based society, they would be dismantled to prevent authoritarian outcomes. Think about the big box stores, which were considered essential. Think about the mom-and-pop businesses, which were considered non-essential. Why do you suppose those big box stores not only uh, survived, but thrived during COVID? Well, the backbone of our country, the small businesses, were crushed during the lockdowns. Are you starting to see the picture here? There's much more to this article by Brandon Smith. Again, you'll find it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Not only will you come away with a really solid understanding of what fascism actually is, as opposed to simply being a cuss word by people who are upset that you didn't, uh, you know, march in lockstep with them. But you'll all start to also start to see that uh, this is being imposed on us at uh, an accelerating rate. Where does it end? I don't know. But I'd say we have to get to work building those parallel institutions, parallel economies, whatever it takes to stay out of the grasp of these kinds of organizations. I think that's about to become extremely important. This is The Brian Hyde Show.